0: Thank you so much for sharing that with us It warmed my heart It was great I don't, I can't preach now let's just go. Thank you David Thank you artists for also helping us Through uh, the worship service With those songs David you picked a song That, that, that song you, s- you were planning on Singing 108 but you wrote down 109 I'd never sing 109 a day in my life That was great Thank you And the last song we sang, uh, Solid Rock, I'd never seen Solid Rock to that tune before either. So this was good. The Bible says, sing to the Lord a new song. And we got to do that this morning. So it was great. Uh, As I said, I appreciated the time I had at the conference. This past week, we had sessions about uh, culture change in a rural area. Talk about what does that look like as we, as Christians, we're in the business of changing culture. If we believe the Bible is true and that we are supposed to be people who love with the love of Christ, we're supposed to go into cultures and show that culture how we love each other. Because cultures are not naturally loving. So, what does it look like to change culture in a rural area? What does it look like to have a pulpit ministry in a public square, not just stuck in your building, but actually go out and? up on some preaching topics, and I got a whole bunch of encouragement from people that I only see once or twice a year. The Sunday after conference, because you know, we rolled into town 830 Friday night, uh, and then yesterday we had some other stuff that go on. So normally the Sunday after conference, I don't prepare uh, an original sermon. I like to take a sermon that I listen to at conference and rework it and share it with you. We had four plenary Way back when, before he was a bigwig, so it was fun to see him there and It's just a mouthful. So for the rest of the sermon, I'm just going to call him Mark, because that's who he is, and he doesn't have to know, okay? No one here is going to tell on me, right? Kobe, you don't count. So Mark grew up in rural Texas. He grew up in ranching country, and he grew up working on a ranch out there. He, reg- he regularly worked on local ranches as a kid to bring in spare One thing he loved most about working on those ranches, you're working on the cattle is great, but he loved interacting with the older, seasoned ranch hands. These men who've been cattle, around cattle all their lives. They live, they breathe, they smell cattle. He loved going there. He wanted to be like them because they were so mature. I mean, they were 18 years old. He was 12, working on these cattle. Mark. overalls on him without a shirt because he's a 12-year-old boy. And he wants to show off the muscles that he's been working in his 12-year-old body. He lays out his boots and he looks at them. He sees his steel-toed boots. He sees his regular boots. He says, huh, they tell me where the steel-toed boots are. Those are big. Those are funky. Those ain't as great. And I sure can't show off He chucks the steel-toed boots, put on his cowboy boots, and he's ready, grabs his bag, goes off, That's going, that's going. There it is. A little bit? Bouncing. Bouncing? Okay, there we go. There was a loose cord back here. All right. <laughs> who wants to hear the start of the story again? A Couple people, okay. So for those who, who did not hear, who are watching online, uh, so this is, a, this is a sermon that's been reworked from Dr. Mark Yarborough, who's the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, he spoke at the conference. They're now caught up. Uh, he was invited as a 12-year-old to go work cattle with a bunch of 18-year-olds on a ranch in Texas, and they told him two rules. Wear steel-toed boots, don't get backed into a corner. Morning comes, and he puts on his overalls without a shirt because He's cool. He looks at his boots and he says, I don't want the steel-toe boots, I want the regular boots, because they're cool. Alright, now they're all that's caught up, right? Okay, good. All right. So he gets to the ranch, sees the corral, he jumps into it, and he has a great old time working this cattle. He has the enviable job of the chalker. His duty is to put a white line of chalk across the backs of the cattle that have been worked so they you know which ones have the shots and which ones don't. And he is jumping around the corral. He's chalking things front ways. He's chalking them across his back. He's showing all these 18-year-olds how cool he is and how suave and how smooth the cattleman he is so they'll make sure that he, they keep calling him back. The whole day goes great as he shows off all his moves. Toward the end of the day, He's getting tired. He's in there with the cattle. He's standing there looking to see, okay, which cattle does he need to swipe next? This one cow comes up, steps down, right on one boot. And he's stuck. He can't move. He tries pulling it, tries pulling it, but it's not working. So he's screaming on his cow. He's pushing it. He's twisting the tail. He's doing all he can to move this cow. And the cow isn't budging. Well, as he's yelling and screaming at this cow, this other cow comes up without him thinking about it and steps down on his other boot. He can't move both He's stuck there. He's screaming. He's yelling, trying to push these cattle. Nothing's happening. He says, fine. Okay, I can't go forward. I'm going to try to jump backward. But as he tries to jump backward, he realizes that he has worked himself into the corner. So he can't go frontwards. He can't go backwards. He's stuck. He starts screaming Someone hopefully would hear him, and as he's doing this, somehow this one cow backs itself up in between these other two cows, right to his face, (laughs) lifts its tail, and unloads at least a month's worth of whatever it's been eaten into his screaming face. It gets in his mouth, goes all down his clothes. And I don't know how you would respond if that happened to you. He fainted. He wakes up at the hospital 13 stitches later And all the 18-year-olds are looking down at him. He's staring at them, and they look at him, laughing, and said, we told you two rules. Two rules. Wear the steel-toed poots. Don't get backed in the corner. What were you thinking? Oh, we were all dying. It was great. Today... We're talking about how easily it is for humans to forget things. Sometimes, there are basic rules for us to remember. Basic facts about life for us to keep in our head. But even though they are basic, and even though we know they're going to make our lives so much easier, we completely forget it. The Israelites in our passage today knew two basic facts but they consistently forgot those two basic facts first basic fact is who God is second basic fact what God desires from those who are his if you turn to first samuel chapter 4 we're going to be in first samuel chapter 4 today first samuel chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 Samuel records this story for us from when he was just a young guy. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Ephek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Israelites? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned before the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plague in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So let's paint the scene. The Israelites are going to war against the Philistines. That's what the text says. The storyline is easy to follow. It's like a melodrama of what's going on. The Israelites are lined up over here. Philistines are lined up over here. The towns that are mentioned, we know where these towns are. They're on border country between the Israelites and the Philistines. and Both the Israelites and the Philistines want more land, so they're, they're on this border. It's the same stuff that's happening today. The Israelites Philistines are on the border trying to decide who gets to have more land than the other. We put ourselves back there in the Old Testament warfare. The Israelites over here, they're up on a hill. And there's a ravine, and the Philistines are over here up on a hill because that's how they fought things back then. Visibility, mobility. The Israelites are there, and they, they know the land. This is their land that they're fighting over. They're reclaiming what Philistia has taken from them. So they know the land, and they think they've set themselves up pretty well for this battle that's happening. They've got the higher ground, and they're going in. The Philistines have the harder task, and Israel has the one true God, and Philistines have all these fake gods. So if you, if you line up all the formula that Israel had, Israel should have won this battle. Should have. But they're slaughtered. It's a rout. 4,000 Israelites die that day. That's the first part of the scene the border war that's going on, but there's a deeper scene that's going on. This is an arc narrative. Something important is being said here about the ark of the covenant. If you read through First and Second Samuel, from beginning to end, and you count all the times that the ark of the covenant is mentioned, it is mentioned 61 times in those two books. 61 times those two books. 36 of those times are found in this narrative that's going on, from 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 7. This isn't just about a border war. This is explaining the Israelites' mindset of who their God is and how the Ark of the Covenant fits into their definition of who God is. The Israelites lose to the Philistines. How do the Israelites respond to royally losing to the Philistines? How do they respond in order to flip this from what seems to be a curse to a blessing? They say, oh, we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to bring the Ark. God had told, now this this thing that they had, this box that was a wooden box covered in gold, God had told the Israelites to build this box back in the day uh, when they were leaving Egypt. God gave them the Ten Commandments, God gave them the, the blueprints for the tabernacle, and in the midst of that, God told them, build this ark. It was to be a sign of God's presence, and it was to be filled with relics and memories of how God had worked in the past. So the Israelites would look at them and say, oh yes, we remember who God is, Remember that he is the God who saved us out of Egypt. He is the God who brought manna and quail. He is the God who miraculously destroyed Jericho and all these other cities. He is the God who is faithful. We can trust him. That's the purpose of the ark. It was stored in the Holy of Holies, kept pure by the priests as they traveled from place to place. The ark was not God. The ark was merely a symbol to remind the Israelites of who their God was. So why in the world... Did the Israelites bring the ark there to the battlefield? The Israelites have lost. 4,000 of their brothers, their fathers, their nephews, their friends are lying dead on the field. And they ask themselves a very important question. They say, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? It's a great question. That is a great question for them to ask. It's a question that a lot of us might have asked in our lifetime. Something bad happens and we come and we say, why? Why did this happen? Instead of waiting to see the answer of that question of why, we try to fix it. We say things like, you know, I'm gonna just do things better. When this happens again, I'm going to do something better. I'm gonna do something better now to make sure it doesn't happen again. You know, I'm gonna do something that will change the result in the future. I, I, you know, if I think spiritually, I must not be going to church enough, or I, I must not be reading my Bible enough, or I must not be doing that, or I must not be doing this of all these religious exercises, so I'm going to do better in order to change the situation I am in, in order that this doesn't happen again. So we attend church. So we take our Bible off of the shelf, and we dust it off, hoping that our religious actions will change the future for the better. But it doesn't work that way. It never does. The Israelites at this time that they're living, they're under the law. They're in the Old Testament. God has given them Genesis to Deuteronomy and that's all they know. And they have 613 laws to keep throughout Genesis and Deuteronomy. If they do not keep these laws, God will bring judgment on them. That's what scripture says. If they're not good in good standing, one of the judgments is that they'll lose their battles. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. Moses tells the people of Israel, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of his commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, all these curses are going to come on you and overtake you. And he talks about lots of different curses, and one of them is found in verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction but flee from them in seven and you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on the earth. Case in point, after Israel fights against Jericho, you know, they march around the town 13 times. They blow horns. Walls fall down. A miraculous thing. God told the Israelites, as you go into Jericho, after you conquer it, make sure to destroy everything. Don't take any of it for yourself because it's all been used to worship false gods and we don't want any of that to taint you. Leave it all, destroy it, burn it, nothing's gonna be left. One man takes some stuff for himself because he says, you know, it's okay for me to take a couple of these things. They'll be fine. His family knows about it. They hide it. Don't tell anyone else. Israelites go to their next battle to fight against Ai. This is a small place. It should have been an easy victory and the Israelites are defeated, horribly defeated. Turns out it's because someone has broken the rule that God has given. They make things right, they go back, and they win against Ai. Basically, and if anything bad happens in Israel at this time, whether it's famine, pestilence, defeat in battle, it's because they're not in a good standing before God at this time. This is the Old Testament that he's talking about. So it's a logical question for the Israelites to ask. We have lost, therefore why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? What is going on? What is wrong with us right now? What do we need to repent of? Great question to ask. What is the result of asking that question? They say something must be wrong. What do I need to repent of? They say, oh, I know. Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. They say, let's bring the ark so that he may go with us from the hand, save us from the hand of our enemies. Who is the he? You might say, well, God. If it's God, why do they bring the ark? Because the ark is merely a symbol of God's presence. God is not there in the ark. Many translations actually say so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies because that is actually the syntax of the passage. They're saying, hey, something's wrong with us spiritually. God has disciplining us. Therefore, let's bring the ark so that it will go with us and it will save us from the hand of our enemies. The Israelites want the ark because they say, if we have the ark with us, therefore, we have God with us because God is the ark. They forget the most basic fact in the world, of who God is. God is bigger than anything that represents his presence. The ark just symbolizes his presence. It's just, it was to remind the Israelites of God's faithfulness and who he was and what he has done in the past. God is so much bigger than an ark. You know, we're very privileged people. Here, those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Peter writes about us in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 to 10. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's an awesome thing to be part of the chosen people, God's special possession. We get to know, we get to have a personal relationship with our Creator. We get to know Him just as we are known by Him. Whenever something bad happens, life slaps us across the face. Someone Something painful happens. We get to come before the throne as the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Any conflict, any problem that comes to us is an opportunity for us to turn to our creator and savior and trust him. So how big is our God? How big is our God? As we live, go through life, is our view of God as this cosmic being who created the heavens and the earth and holds everything together by his power, is that who our God is? Or is, or have we put our God in a wooden box like the Israelites did and say, this is our God, and we're gonna bring our God wherever we want to, like this talisman, like this token, so this will do whatever we want him to do. Do we look at the Bible and say, this is our God? Do we look at church and say, this is our God? Do we look at religious rituals and say, this is our God? Kenneth Chaffin said this, having the paraphernalia of God and having God are not the same thing. There are a lot of people who have the paraphernalia of God, but they don't have him. The Israelites forgot who God was. The Israelites forgot basic fact number two. What does God desire from those who are his? God wants a life change that starts from a heart change. If we truly understand who God is, how we live in this world is going to change without a doubt. If we truly understand who God is. So looking at the text, who has a better understanding of who God is in this passage. Hey, David, I need you to be good for mommy. Okay? Thank you. Looking at this text, who has a better understanding of who God is? First Samuel chapter 4, verses 3 to 9. The soldiers returned to camp, and the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, So that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you'll be subject to the Hebrews as they've been to you. Be men and fight. The Israelites said, something happened. Therefore, we need help. Let's bring God into the camp. So they haul this wooden box into the camp and say, this is our God, he is here, now we're fine. The Philistines, in their pantheistic idol worship, say, we're doomed. We remember who their God is. We remember what he's done. We can't face him. Philistines be men. We're going to die before him, but let's die like men. In this story, who had a better understanding of who God was? The Philistines did. Even though the Philistines are technically the bad guy in this story, they have a better understanding of who God is than the Israelites do. They present what God desires from his people. They show a broken and humble heart and say, before this God, we can do nothing. They don't follow through. They fight against God's people, but at least they're humbled by him, as opposed to the Israelites who want their God as a good luck charm. Years later, David is going to be king of Israel, and he's going to commit adultery with Bathsheba. And he, he, Nathan comes and confronts him, and David sees God's holiness, and he is convicted that he has sinned against a holy God, And he writes in Psalm 51 and says in Psalm 51, 10 to 17, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressions your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, my tongue will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Realizing who God is, being humbled by it, and changing, that's the result that God looks for in us. So do we present God with a broken spirit? And humble heart through our lives. The basic form of this presenting God with a broken and humble heart is at the moment of salvation. We see God for who he is, that he is a holy God that cannot have any sin near him, and we realize that we are sinners, and our sin separates us from God, and we realize that there is nothing we can do about it. We see God, and we're humbled by it. We're broken by it and we turn to Jesus as our only hope and we say, I realize who you are and I realize I am powerless to bring myself to you. Therefore, I bow myself and accept Jesus' work as my only hope. There are some of us who have never humbled ourselves before God and we're still trying to work our way through salvation. We're still trying to work our way to heaven. We say, oh, if we just do these religious rituals, we can do it. I can do it. I can make God do what I want him to do. There's some of us say, oh, if I just pray these prayers, or if I just attend church enough, or if I, if I do these things, I can make my way to heaven. And God wants you to stop. To realize who you are and be broken and humbled by who he is. To give up your pride and come to him. Do we present God with a broken and humble heart? This doesn't just apply to salvation, though that is the basic part of it, but it applies to all areas of life. Everything that we do if we are a follower of Jesus Christ should be marked by a broken and humble heart. In farming, in ranching, During calving season and haying season, planting and harvesting in our businesses, dealing with employees and coworkers, do we present God with a broken and humble heart? And do people around us see that in us? One thing I was convicted about this past week as I was hearing the sermons that was given to me and the messages and the breakout sessions and my conversations with people is that how often I try to do life by myself. How often I try to do ministry and preaching by myself, saying, you know, I can do it. I am sufficient, when I'm not. I am not. It is impossible for me to live the life that God has called me to live, apart from him. I reflect on a rancher who once said, God's a better rancher than I am, so I'm gonna trust him due to the ranching. So during calving season, while all these other co workers, all these other ranchers, or doing long hours trying to save their cattle and nurse their calves, he stayed inside with his family. Got a full night's sleep because he said, God can do a better than I can." During haying season, he regularly attended church, volunteering at church. All, all the rest of his fellow ranchers were saying, no, we got to make hay while the, while the sun shines. But he said, no, God's a better rancher than I am. He is my priority. I'm going to live my life with this broken, humble heart saying he's got it. Realizing we can do nothing. Without God, we are nothing. Without God, we can do nothing. Well, Mark grew up, had a son. This was after they lived in ranching country. They're living in the city now. His son is four years old. Uh, And his son was a normal four-year-old boy in that he, he liked to uh, play around, have a lot of fun, and do things that he probably shouldn't do. Well, One day, this four-year-old boy, while Mark was out teaching, this four-year-old boy turned their bathroom into a jungle gym. And he was having grand old time. Uh, and he looked at the towel rod and said, I bet I can use that towel rod to run up on the wall and flip myself over so he goes up, grabs the towel rod, swings himself on it. Towel rod pulls out from the wall. And Mark has no idea how this happened, but it turns out the son is on the ground with the bracket and sc- the screws of the towel rod through the bracket and into the toe of his son. And he showed us this x-ray. Of, of that bracket and screws through the toe. It was quite something. I had no idea how it happened, but it's through the toe and, and part of the bone, too, through it, like, strictly through it. He gets taken to the hospital. Wife calls Mark up and says, hey, we're going to the hospital because this is what's happened. Mark says, say what? Which hospital? They go. Walks in. Sees his son lying there with the gown there. His son looks at him and says, Dad, I'm good. <laughs> all these doctors are coming in to look at this toe because they had never seen anything like it either. Like all the doctors in the hospital are coming in and they're all conversing, trying to figure out what's happened with this and what they are to do because they can't just pull this screw out because it will mess up the toe even worse than what it is on how it has f- impaled it. They can't just pull it out. So they're trying to figure out what to do, and finally they call the maintenance guy. Maintenance guy comes in with a screwdriver, and Charborough looks at us and says, you know, I see all these doctors huddling around this maintenance guy, and he says, I hope that I don't get a bill from each one of these doctors when I could have just brought my son to Menards, and it would just be fine. They explain the procedure. They're going to unscrew the bracket from the boy's foot. And as they're explaining this procedure to Mark, this four-year-old boy pops up and says, I need to talk to my dad. All the doctors leave immediately. Mark's there alone with his son. His son asks him three questions. Dad, is this going to make me fast? Mark says, well, you'll be faster without the bracket than with it. So yes, it'll make you fast. Dad, is it going to hurt? Well, son, it'll hurt a little bit, but they'll give you some medicine and it'll make you feel better. Dad, do you trust them? I don't trust that guy. Mark says, yes, yes, I trust them. I don't know, Dad. I don't know. I don't trust them but I trust you. Therefore, let's do it. If we realize who God is, we will have a heart change that brings on a life change. We'll look at the world around us and we'll say, I don't trust what's going on. But I trust you, God. You know, God, I'm hurt by the pain of this life. But I trust you, God. I don't know what the next stage of life is going to be. I'm at this crossroads. I don't know what, how my body is going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to make through this situation emotionally. But I trust you, God. I don't trust him, Dad. Why I trust you. Israelites didn't get this. They didn't. They saw their God as this box. The end of this passage is very, very anticlimactic. The Israelites said, we're going to bring God into camp, and so they bring this box. The Philistines say, God has entered the camp. We're doomed. Both sides go to battle. Both sides fought hard. And the Israelites are slaughtered. Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The Israelites needed to learn this lesson, but they didn't. That we were to trust God and we're gonna present him with a broken and humble heart instead of pride thinking we know what needs to happen, and Israelites don't get it. They need to be reminded over and over and over again. Have you ever studied the memory of a goldfish? Any of you ever studied the memory of goldfish? Kobe, you've studied the memory of goldfish? Three seconds. It is a popular conception that memory of the goldfish is from three to 10 seconds. Unfortunately, Jacoby, that was a trick question. Because 60 years ago, they disproved that. Uh, But everyone talks about how the memory of Goldvis is 3 to 10 seconds, and it makes for a great story. However, they have proven that the attention span, the the memory of a bee, short term memory of a bee, is 2.5 seconds. And I'm wondering who is holding that stopwatch? If it has to do with food, they've got a longer memory, but their short-term memory is 2.5 seconds. Chimpanzees, their memory is 20 seconds. Didn't know that, did you? If it has to do with food, it's longer, but their just memory, short-term, is 20 seconds. No matter which animal you're talking about, whether it's the goldfish, if you want to persistent thinking that only has three seconds or it's the bee or the chimpanzee or any of these other like the hamster horrible short-term memory also so often we are like these we need to have the basics repeated over and over and over and over again even though life tells us you know who god is you know how we're supposed to present ourselves to him but over and over we don't So these basic facts are important because the faithfulness of our life and ministry is based upon our view of him and how we live according to him. So we'll remember. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for being the God who did everything possible that we might know you and be known by you for realizing that we could not do anything to bring ourselves to you so you sent your son Jesus to come to earth and die, that everyone who humbles himself before you and accepts you as their only Savior gives up and follows you, will be saved. And we can have confidence in that and we can know that you are trustworthy, that we are your people and you do things well for us. And though we don't trust any of the world, we can trust you and say, I will follow you. Lord, help us to be people who confess that and live that every single day. Thanks, Father. Amen. Stand and take our hymnals and turn to number